The following sermon podcast is a glimpse into the community of Central Bible Church, where we strive to welcome everyone into Jesus' life. We hope that you can join us for this Sunday service as we gather together seeking to live in and for Christ. to Ruth chapter 1. I'm going to read verses 1 through 6 for us this morning. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And a man from Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Mahlon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah, and they went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. And these took Moabite wives. The name of the one wife was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. And they lived there in Moab about 10 years, when both Mahlon and Kilion died, so that the woman was then left without her two sons and her husband. And then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Thank you, Mackenzie. Good morning. My name is Ashua. I'm one of the, the teaching pastors here. And it's, I'm really excited about getting into uh, the book of Ruth with you. Um, real quick, a, a short announcement. On uh, June 2nd, we're going to have the first um, pastor's coffee. And it, uh, we hope to make it a a monthly time for visitors to come and just hang out and have, uh, enjoy lunch and some coffee and conversation with uh, some of the, the pastoral staff or leadership team, just to ask questions about the church, get to know it a little bit more, and, and find out what the next steps are for involvement in this community. So the first one will be June 2nd. They'll tend to be the first Sunday of the month, so June 2nd, and they'll be at Fillmore Coffee. Uh, and we'll provide uh, lunch there and, and drinks. Fillmore is right down Gleason. What's the cross street? 72nd? Is that, there you go, 72nd. Great place. So if you uh, are new, uh, visiting, um, and want to find out more about how to get involved, that's a great place uh, to get started. Okay? So, yeah, we're going to be in the book of Ruth. And I wonder, what comes to your mind when you think of this book, if, we've, if you've been a Christian for a while, you've, you've read it. I know like my, my girls, they're growing up in a, in a Christian home and, and they love the book. And we, and we read it to them and they like ask for the audio book to be put on at night as they go to sleep. And it's just, it's like a favorite story of my daughters. And it's kind of that quintessential love story, right, in the scriptures. It's a, it's a, a story of newfound hope after tragedy strikes. Um, or maybe you think of it as kind of the story of Prince Charming, 
right? Coming in to rescue the princess. Or maybe you think of it as a story of great moral examples, right? Ladies, you should be like Ruth. Work hard, be loyal to your family, and pick a godly husband. Um, Or guys, you should be like Boaz, who worked hard, was faithful in the little things, and so God blessed him with something great, Um, a wonderful wife and even a godly heritage. So you should be like that. So perhaps we've we've heard these versions of the story or, or, or thought these things as we've read them, but I don't think these kind of surface level or even kind of more moralistic readings really do justice to the depth and power of this book. And I don't think it does justice to how subversive the message was to the original readers and how subversive it can be for us today. And so that's what we're calling this series, Subversive Kindness. And we'll explain that a little bit more as we get going. This, this opening message, we're going to take six weeks in the series, and this week is kind of like um, the, the blurbs on the outside of like a bestseller book or like the new movie trailer. So you guys see the new Star Wars trailer just came out a couple weeks ago. We were so excited. But, right, it, it gets your, your kind of anticipation going. It hints at little things that might happen in, in the story. Um, and it, it lets other voices kind of speak into it, right? The blurbs on a book say, oh, it's this. this is, it's important because of this or this or this. And it makes you say, hey, I want to learn more. This is significant, or maybe it it causes you to think a little deeper or to look at it from a different perspective. So that's what we're going to do this morning. Rather than actually jumping in to the story, this little the reading that Mackenzie did is kind of a little overview of the story. Tragedy and then a little glimpse of hope. Right? God has again blessed and brought food to Bethlehem. And, And so there's this brokenness and sadness and then a movement towards hope. So that's the little kind of glimpse of it. But we're just going to, we're going to kind of step back and say, what makes this book so subversive and so powerful? Uh, and, and perhaps take a little different approach to it. So if you've been in church for a while, you've heard this idea of context, right? Right, you've got to read the Bible in context. Um, and that's important. But I think some, sometimes... In more evangelical conservative circles, particularly over the last 100 years, 100 to 200 years, we've taken more of like this scientific approach to the Bible. And, we, and in, in the attempt to like defend the Bible against the people that would challenge it, we've, we've tried to be really scientific and, and so like, like reason, empirical evidence oriented that we've, we've like chopped the Bible and put it on like the, the laboratory table to examine it instead of letting it come alive and interact relationally with it, right? It, and, and we somehow think that we can like leave our culture at the door and we can put on our lab coats, right? And we're gonna, we got perfect little uh, analytical, historical, grammatical tools and we're going to like nitpick the Bible and tear it apart and we're going to find that one true like once and for all meaning of that one verse, right? As though you haven't heard like 20 sermons on the same verse before, right? And they're all different and, they're, and maybe most of them are good, right? So, so th- th- this kind of uh, modernist approach to the Bible 
somehow misses the previous like 1,800 years of Christian interpretation where we, where we have interacted more relationally with the scriptures. And we, and we haven't tried to take this ultra-scientific approach, but we've, we've said, let's read it in context, but, but a wider context, more of a relational context. So I, I, I wonder, what if you sat down in conversation with Ruth or Naomi or Boaz, right? And and then invited someone else to the table. Would that change the conversation a little bit? Yeah, and, and you know, I've been in a book club before. I've, I, I've actually never been in a book club. I've, I, like, we're studying books on the leadership team. I've been in classes, right? Where, but the idea is you read a book, and then, but you're reading it in community, right? It's not just alone. You then show up, whether it's class or, or your book club, and you're gonna talk about it, and you're gonna get different perspectives, right? on the book, different experiences, and it's actually gonna bring more depth to your understanding of the book. And that can happen relationally too. C.S. Lewis talks about uh, in The Four Loves, he's mourning over the loss of a friend who, who died. But he doesn't just mourn over the loss of that friend and their contribution to his life. He actually mourns over how he, he's lost something in his other friends as well. Because that friend who died brought out other things in the other uh, men in his group of friends. And, and the gal's there. Like, and he's, so he's mourning not just the loss of the deceased friend, but the loss of the living friends, the part of them that, that don't get drawn out anymore. And so what if we sat down and read Ruth um, and, and, and sat down with, let's say, Naomi, who we just read, who suffered and lost, her husband and her sons. What if she, we sat down around the coffee table with Naomi and Job and said, hey, let's talk about suffering. What is that like for you? Wouldn't some new things kind of come out in that conversation? Or, or what if we sat down with this quintessential virtuous woman from Proverbs 31, right? And then invited Ruth to the table who was called a virtuous woman in the book of Ruth. And, and we, got, we began to see, wow, wow, in which way is this, is she like an embodiment of this, of this wisdom of Proverbs? Or what if we introduced Ruth to Raphet's mom? Raphet is a friend of mine, and he is a, a young Burmese Muslim refugee that I, I've, I've mentored over the years. And, and what, if, what if we introduced Ruth to Raphet's mom, who's a a Burmese Muslim refugee who lost her husband about four or five years ago and is a, a widow and whose older sons had to drop out of high school so they could get jobs at 7-Eleven to support the family. How would, how would she help us understand the experience of the widow and Ruth, the refugee? I think our... our understanding would be enriched. So we're going to engage in these conversations and we're going to invite different people to the table to talk and learn from the scriptures and help us understand uh, this amazing story of Ruth. But this morning, we're going to start that conversation and we're going to, I'm going to try to whet your appetite and, and even make you feel uncomfortable a little bit. Okay, we're going to, we're going to talk through nine 
of the subversive themes in the book of Ruth. Things that were subversive and challenged the status quo and like the assumed religious norms of that day. And I think continue to challenge us today. So, I know we'll have them up on the, on the slides. Hopefully you can read them. The first one. In a world of abusive patriarchy, this book lifts up the honor and dignity of women and the essential role that they play in God's purposes in the world. The women are the central characters of this story. And these women aren't passive. They're not doormats. They take initiative. They are bold and risk-taking. And we learn in this story that God cares deeply about these women and their particular feminine suffering, their widowhood, their infertility, their struggles as women living in this largely abusive patriarchal society. And in a culture where the family line was traced right through the male line and the sons were valued far more than daughters, right? And you read the genealogies, right? This man beget this man beget this man beget this man. And you're like, where are the women? How did they pull all this off? They keep having kids, but they don't mention the women, right? So this is this peak little glimpse into the genealogy of Jesus. What will you find that, you know, there were, there were women involved in this whole process. And there was, there was this, this woman, Rahab, who was a prostitute, who, when you read the genealogy in Matthew, you find out that's Boaz's mom. Or you learn about Rahab, the Moabitess, who is, who is this despot, from this despised people group. And and you just get the glimpse into the, the, the female side of the genealogy, and you realize that half really matters. In fact, if that half wasn't actively engaged, this, this story of redemption would not have happened. And then you see in Boaz that the man of this story uses his masculine strength not to dominate or control the vulnerable female characters, which is the context of the book of, Ju- of Judges, but instead to honor them and protect them in a Christ-like manner. That's the first way that we might find this book to be subversive. The second one, in a world of ethnocentrism and nativism, Ruth gives a face and name to the immigrant and the refugee and shows the essential role that they play in God's purposes. Naomi, Elimelech, and their sons are famine refugees. They go into Moab to survive, and as far as we can tell from the story, they are welcomed into the community of Moab. They they find a way to meet their needs even after the men of the family die. Right, And, And this sojourn into Moab is a reminder to us of the story of the patriarchs. This is not a foreign part of, of the story of God's people, right? The patriarchs, um, you have Jacob, there's a famine in the land. Where do they go at the end of the book of Genesis? They go to, to Egypt, right? The patriarchs were famine refugees who had to move into Egypt. And so they're reminded, God's people are reminded that, that this is a part of their story. That immigration and, and, and being forcefully relocated is a part of the story of God's people. 
And we see this in, uh, it's probably maybe hard to read. I'll, I'll just read it. It's from Exodus 22. This is what God says to his people about how to treat the sojourner and the refugee. It says, you shall not wrong a sojourner or oppress him. For you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. You shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. If you do mistreat them and they cry out to me, I will surely hear their cry. In other words, you know what side God is on? <laughs> when, when you oppress the immigrant and the refugee. Or again in Exodus 23.9, you shall not oppress a sojourner. You know the heart of a sojourner, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. I just meditate on that. You know the heart. You know the experience. How, if that's foreign to your experience, being a, a, a refugee or, or an immigrant, get to know someone <laughs> who, who, who knows that experience, who that is their story, and, and you will understand your Bible better. But there's another immigration, right, that takes place in this story. It's, just, it's the immigration of, of Ruth the Moabite, who moves into Bethlehem with Naomi, Right, And this is significant. And we've got to take longer to get into the biblical context of this. But the Moabites were not welcome in Israel. There were harsh words for the Moabites. In fact, they were excluded from the temple for ten generations because of their idolatry, their immorality, their, and, and the, their, their warring with Israel. These were like arch enemies. Right? But we see in Boaz a welcoming of Ruth where he, he goes above and beyond the requirements of the law to the sojourner and Im immigrant to welcome her and show her kindness. Look, look at this. I mean, this theme's going to come up in, um, in the book. But this is the, the background of, this, of the gleaning at the harvest field. Leviticus 19, 9 and 10. When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge. Neither shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. And you shall not strip your vineyard bare. Neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. Right? He had a plan to provide for the poor, for the widow, for the alien, the stranger, the refugee. It was built into the legal system of the nation of Israel. And then we see Boaz goes above and beyond. And he's like, forget just the, like the corners of the field. We're just going to purposely drop stuff on the ground so she can pick it up. Because he is so generous. <laughs> Third way, this book is subversive. In a world of culture wars and vitriolic debate... The book of Ruth humanizes those we disagree with and helps us to see the good that they are capable of and the evil that we are capable of. Ruth is like the Old Testament version of the Good Samaritan parable. <laughs> and I think when we read it, we don't realize how subversive the Good Samaritan story is. If I had to write the story, if, I, if, if someone came up to me and, and, and uh, writing that Think of the situation with Jesus, right? And the, um, the, uh, the religious Jewish man comes up and he's like, who is my neighbor, right? Who do I really need to love and show mercy to, right? If, if that was the question that, that the man asked me, I would tell a story kind of like this, right? Um, and it's the story of, right? So 
there's, there's this man, and he gets attacked, and he's, uh, he, he's helpless, and he's dying on the side of the road. And then a, um, a liberal progressive uh, Portland, like, uh, I don't know, hipster atheist walks by <laughs> and, and sees this guy, and he's like, I got somewhere to be. I, I don't have time to help this guy. Uh, or maybe, no, he's like, oh, he's got his little sign. He needs help. I'll, I'll throw him my 50 cents. I've done my duty. My conscience feels better. I'm going to go on my way. And, and, then, and then, like, um, a, a Muslim comes, comes by. And he's like, oh, i got to get the prayers. It's time to go pray. I don't have time to help this poor guy. But then, the Christian. The, the loving, sacrificial, uh, blood-bought Christian comes up and sees this poor man who's probably a Samaritan, who's probably like this, this marginalized, needy uh, minority, and, and I am going to come help. Maybe, maybe he's African with a big pot belly, right? And I'm going to come and I'm going to meet all of his needs. I'm going to swoop in and come to the rescue. Don't we like to tell that story? Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're the good people. We, we help a lot of people. We do all these good things. We've rescued Africa. No, we haven't, by the way. <laughs> that, that's the story I would write. That's not the story that Jesus tells. Who is the hero of Jesus' story? Okay. It's the despised. It's, it, it's the... the it's like this category, this like, no, no, that the Samaritans, they were like at ongoing historical war with, with the Jewish people, right? There was ongoing like, we're killing each other, we hate each other, we, we, you're the heretics, right? There was no love between the Samaritans and the Jews. But Jesus says, no, no. It's not, the hero is not the disciple of Jesus, right? And the, the, the needy person is actually a Jewish man. And it's actually his own religious leaders that walk by him. And it's then the despised, marginalized person that is the one that comes and helps him. So if we told it today, it wouldn't be the good Samaritan. It would be the good transvestite the good Wahhabi Muslim, the good undocumented immigrant, or maybe the good Trump supporter. Whatever whatever it is, fill in the blanks for that that person that you're like, oh, there's nothing good in them, right? Nothing good comes from Nazareth, is what they said about Jesus. Fill in the blanks for you, and, and that's where the Good Samaritan story is subversive. That's where it's getting at, where you don't get to be the hero in God's story. He gets to be the hero. <laughs> and in Ruth, who's the hero? Right? It's, it's, it's a Moabite, it's a, a barren Moabite widow that comes in and like, like brings in and carries on the line of the Messiah through like the darkest, most like grotesque, offensive, immoral time in Israel's history. Like, Israel was so jacked up in the time of Judges, God's like, you know what, I can't, I, I can't really find any women that I can work with well here in Israel. I'm going to have to go to Moab, and we're going to bring in one of the Moabites 
so that we can help carry on the line of the Messiah through the time of Judges. That's subversive. That's like, whoa, okay, wait, okay. And it, it forces you to shift your categories a bit. Are we, are we uncomfortable yet? How are we doing? You guys doing okay? How long do I have? I don't have to go through all these. What's my, my cutoff time? <laughs> okay, I, I will keep it. I see the clock. I'll keep going. Okay, until you, you cut the mic. Um, point four. In a world where widows are forgotten and the infertile are marginalized, these take the center stage of God's redemptive purposes and accomplish world-changing things. So, one of my favorite authors is J.R.R. Tolkien. And I love geeking out on Tolkien quotes. And I love his vision of the Christian life and, and how it shapes his story of the Lord of the Rings. And, and this is one of his major themes, okay? You, you think about, right, where, like, these big epic stories, right? Big things are happening. You, you want, like... Characters and heroes, right? Like maybe you've seen the like the Avengers. You go to the superhero movies. Who are the heroes? They're superheroes, right? Okay, this is the anti-superhero story, right? It's like let's let's just totally go to the margins. Let's go and find the weak and the humble and and the nobodies, and and they're the ones that that rescue the world. And that's part of the reasons why I, th- I think Lord of the Rings is so great. Here's a, a little quote. This is from uh, The Fellowship of the Ring, and this is a theme that he touches on, on the hobbits, the little short people with the hairy toes. (laughs) Listen to this. The world being full, after all, of strange creatures beyond count, these little people seemed of very little importance. But in the days of Bilbo and of Frodo, his error, they suddenly became, by no wish of their own, both important and renowned and troubled the counsels of the wise and the great. Right? He, he's telling the biblical story. I think Tolkien read the book of Ruth. He's like, great earth-shattering things are going to happen through little nobodies. That's subversive. That's, that's powerful. And in fact, that's biblical. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 Verse 26 says this, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. The book of Ruth humbles us. Shows us how God uses the weak to shame the strong and powerful. Point five, in a world of radical individualism where God is marginalized and people do whatever is right in their own eyes, a faithful God is still at work behind the scenes keeping for himself a remnant, a faithful remnant. And we see that. We see that at the time of Judges is not that much unlike our own culture. 
right? And the, the phrase that keeps getting repeated, if you just turn one page back in your Bible, you look at the end of the book of Judges, it says, in those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And so the main characters in our story are totally countercultural, and they live subversively because they're in a culture that is full of anarchy, right? Full of chaos, full of sexual perversion, full of abuse and the celebration of wickedness. And they say, no, we're not going to live like that. We're going to go against the stream, against the flood of debauchery. And we're going we're to live in the way of Torah, in the way of God's law, God's good instruction. We're not going to agree with the culture that says, oh yeah, God just wants to put a moral straitjacket on you and, and control you and we're going to be free and, and be liberated. No, they, they say, no, we, we are going to walk in the good ways of, of God. That's totally countercultural. And, and we see that in how the men and women interact, how, they, how they, uh, they pursue marriage in a godly and honorable way. And, and it's, just, it's just beautiful. It's a beautiful story of, of countercultural character. Number six, in a world of inexplicable suffering and unexplainable tragedy, the book presents a God who works in and through all these things to bless and redeem. Right? The book of Ruth presents God as having a hand both in both the suffering of his people and their blessing and restoration. Right? This can be deeply hope-giving in times of suffering, that God is sovereign and that he's not surprised by your suffering. And, you know, there's, there's easy ways out to just say, well, you know what, and as you deal with the problem of evil... Right, okay, well, just God is not good. He's a monster. That's where all these things happen. Or God's just not in control. And it's all just kind of outside his control. And he just kind of watches. And I wish I could do something. I'm so sorry your husband died. But, but to bring the tension together, the book of Ruth challenges us to see God at work in and through even the depth of suffering that we experience. Even the famine. Even the death in the family, and to see that God is weaving this story of redemption through it. And we can say, with Job, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. That's subversive. That's not easy, but it's powerful. Number seven, in a world where playing the victim and expecting personal entitlement are mainstream, the marginalized of this story refuse self-pity and fight against all odds to move in from the margins. So we have a lot of opportunities in this story to feel bad for the characters, right? And to see them as victims of horrible circumstances, victims of a corrupt patriarchal society, a lack of food security, or racial prejudice, right? And you see a little bit of it in Naomi as she's I left Naomi, now I'm Mara, now I'm bitter, I'm angry at God, and I've, I've, I've experienced this suffering. But the story doesn't let us stay there, right? There's such just a, a, a kind of a glorification of victimhood and entitlement in our culture, right? That's not the way you bring dignity to the marginalized. 
And we see that in this book, that these ladies move from a place of mourning, and they take on the world. They don't wallow in self-pity, right? And we're invited not to pity the marginalized, but to, to, and, and to build in their idea, an idea of victimhood. Instead, we need to see the injustices that marginalize people. We need to address the systemic issues that marginalize. But then the gospel doesn't leave us as victims, right? It turns us into victors. It doesn't show pity for us and leave them there. It gives them a song to sing, a song of joy and praise to God, of, of, of stepping out and, and, and not just being on the sidelines, I have a lot of refugee friends. That's, that's what we do. That's what we've dedicated our, our, our life to, to love and reach and share the good news of Jesus with uh, those that have come from the nations to live among us. And you know what? A lot of my refugee friends are American citizens. Like they've, in fact, they know more about our country than we might because they have to take the citizenship test. And you've got to learn a bunch of stuff that you don't normally learn in, in public school. Right? And, and so they've gone through the test. They've gone through that. And, and they want to be American citizens. And they're good contributing members of our, of our society. They don't want to forever be refugees. They're just, I'm, I'm just an American. I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a new Portlander. Now I'm an old Portlander. And their kids grow up. And, I, and it's like, right? We, we move out of, and I, I, we can experience and have a part of our story being we were victims. We were abused. We, we suffered greatly. But God and the gospel invites us to move out of that, to not live in that. Let that shape us, but to empower us to do great things. Two more. In the huge story of God's redemption, spanning thousands of years and telling of the rise and fall of countless nations, a small mundane story about a widow, a refugee, and a farmer is included and made essential. In this way, the small and mundane aspects of our lives are given meaning and purpose as they fit into God's wider story of redemption. Right? So God is at work not just in the huge events of the world, but in the everyday mundane decisions that we make. And in fact, those everyday mundane decisions turn into, right, life patterns and, and habits that then shape us so that when, that when that, like, that moment of decision, that moment of opportunity, that moment of, of severe temptation comes on us, we've already shaped ourselves into being the kind of person that is prepared for that, to take that moment of opportunity to fight in that moment of temptation. And, and so it, it dignifies the mundane in the everyday. And, and it tells us that God is at work in these little things in life. And it helps us to see God at work behind the scenes. And then finally, in a society where the religious people held to a legalistic interpretation of the law that excluded outsiders... This book holds up the missional values of generosity and kindness that break down barriers and create space for all people to experience God's love. The story of Ruth is in a lot of ways an, an illustration of Jesus' words in Matthew 
9, 13. He, he's quoting, I, I believe, from Amos. Right? He's confronting these, these, these Pharisees and these religious leaders. And he says this. He says, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. That was offensive to those people. To those people that had, had created their own religious self-righteousness. Who had, by their perfect kind of, or, or in their mind, perfect obedience to the law, had so insulated themselves from sin that they could earn their own righteousness. But in doing so, they had so insulated themselves from sinners that that law that they thought they were under had actually told them, go and love. Go and reach. Go and lay your life down for these and Jesus did that. He broke the, and challenged the Sabbath restrictions, right? He would heal on the Sabbath. He would, uh, he would break down the purity codes and he would touch the lepers. And he would do these things that made these religious people feel uncomfortable. <laughs> but he was doing it in, in this radical, rule-bending love. And we see that in the book of, of Ruth again and again. Where, where there, it's, it's not just the letter of the law, it's the heart behind it. The, Boaz married a Moabite. He wasn't supposed to do that. <laughs> like the central to the story. <laughs> right? But it was this call. It was this invitation, this missional impulse of God's hesed love, his kindness that goes out to the nations. And that is the invite to the gospel, and that challenges us today. That's what the, this, this book does. And so I, I hope that the, these, this, little, this little introduction makes you want to read the book of Ruth this week, because uh, we'll get into the text uh, in the following weeks. But I hope that it makes you think through it differently, and maybe even invite different voices to the table as you read through it. Maybe other biblical voices, right? The Job, or the Proverbs, or the Psalms, uh, or the Gospels. Um, but even to invite others. Someone from maybe a widow. Someone wrestling with infertility. Someone who has, uh, was forcefully displaced, a refugee, an immigrant. To learn from that experience. Uh, to help us understand and know God more. Because we're not ultimately just trying to... to um, dissect and find meaning in a book. We're trying to meet a living God. And he invites us to know him, to worship him. He challenges us wherever we're, we're coming from. This book is going to be challenging. And it's going to call us to love our community, to love people, invite them in to that love that we have experienced. I'm going to invite the, the band up. Uh, we're going to uh, respond in worship and we're going to respond in communion. We're going we're gonna to share and break bread together. And the beauty of that is that it, it calls us into one body that says that, that no matter what your background is, that if, if you've come to Jesus and you've heard that invitation, right, I came to call not the righteous but sinners. If you've heard that, if you're here this morning and you say, I'm righteous, I don't need Jesus to die for my sins, then this message isn't for you. You don't need him and you can go on your way. But the good news is, is that he has come 
to meet us in our brokenness, in our need, and to call us out of the margins of our sin into that, that central place of his presence, into that central place of his love. So come, take communion if, if you've trusted him, or maybe even for the first time this morning to place your faith in him and take that meal. Remember that his body was broken, his blood was shed. And then sing and worship, knowing that, that wherever we've come from, we, we get to be in his family, that we are his sons and daughters. And that's amazing. Let me, let me pray as we uh, begin to worship. Uh, Jesus, thank you that you have loved us. Thank you that you, you know us uh, inside and out. And uh, you don't leave us uh, alone to, uh, uh, in a foreign land, in famine, uh, and estranged from family and living in tragedy. But you, you invite us back into Bethlehem, the house of bread. You invite us into the place of feasting. Uh, you, uh, and you, you redeem us. You give us new life. And that comes through Jesus. And so we, we want to embrace him this morning just as we want to embrace the other and the outsider. Make us that kind of people, Lord Jesus. We pray in your name. Amen. We desire to be formed by the word of God in community. If you have questions about this week's sermon, we would love to hear from you. For more information about our church, please visit centralbible.church.